Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all their region around the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is at hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all unrighteousness, all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. I want to just echo that exhortation that my father gave at uh, the announcements. I'm really convinced that the Lord is inviting our church into a season of visitation. And I, I don't know if you have a personal history with God that values the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, but I believe that that is the single most important aspect of our church culture if we are to bear fruit long term. That without the Holy Spirit, all form is dead, and all religious practice is ultimately vanity. It's, it's hypocrisy. It's the sort of things that the Pharisees are doing in this passage. And so I, I personally also, like my father, I probably inherited it from him, but I'm also a goal. I'm a lister. My wife and I, we've discovered that we both love making to-do lists. And that's a blessing and a curse. Sometimes I, have, I have a file in my wonder list that is 400 books long. <laughs> and um, I'm never going to read them all. But the point is, um, I, I do believe it's right to take seasons of intentional pursuit of God's heart, God's will, God's ways, that you would become a steward of the things that he has given to his people throughout the ages. And, and one of those things, as we're going to see in this passage, is the gift of the Holy Spirit. So today is traditionally known as Epiphany, or the, the first Sunday after the Epiphany. Uh, just the way that we do our church calendar, we actually don't celebrate Epiphany because it happens in the middle of the week, but we have a season, if you've been here for the last three years, called Epiphany, and that season celebrates the unveiling of Jesus Christ to the nation, the revealing of him as the Messiah. But one of the elements that I want to bring out today that we've never discussed, although we've preached on Matthew 3 three or four times now, that that is presented here is the triune nature of God and how that is displayed that Christ would be identified as the mediator, as the Messiah to the nation, and how he is our model. So those really big three ideas, I've broken them apart into five ideas. First, we're going to look at John's baptism for repentance, what it consists of, that, that is what John was doing in bringing out a message of baptism. We're going to look at Christ's baptism as the mediator and how that has a unique relationship to the baptism. Jesus did not need to repent. We're going to 
We're going to look at why he was baptized and how important it was. We're going to look then at the Spirit's descent upon Christ, even though it's only at the end of the chapter, and then the Father's voice that comes to proclaim, declare, affirm his Son in the public square as his delegated authority. The Father does not adopt the Son at this moment by the sending of the Spirit. He does not approve of the Son in this moment alone, but says, in whom I am well pleased, past tense. And so the Father's voc- uh, the voicing or the, the calling forth of blessing to be on his Son for public ministry. And then finally, we're going to look at how that applies to the Christian's life as disciples of Jesus Christ. So first, I want to look at John the Baptist and his mission. Uh, For those of you who may not be aware, the Gospel of John was written by a man named John who was one of Jesus's disciples, and that is a different person than John the Baptist. So I'm going to say when John tells us, and then a few times it's going to refer to the book of John, just know that that's speaking about the Apostles' Gospel recording John the Baptist's words. So there are two different guys, John the Apostle, John the Baptist. And uh, John the Baptist was actually a Presbyterian um, because that's the right form of church government. Um, he wasn't a Baptist. I'm just kidding. That's a, bap- that's a bad joke. Um, a lot of people call him John the Baptizer. Now, I personally have, I have great, probably one of my best friends is a Baptist. Um, I don't know if he thinks He's, I'm his best friend, but anyway, the point is that, that it, it's not at all that John the Baptist is the same thing as what you might call a Baptist today. It's a different word. It's a different term. Uh, but knowing that John the Baptist comes as a prophet, he comes indeed as the capstone prophet. John stands in a line, in a tradition of a series of men who were called to prophesy against the sins of Israel, reminder of the works that Yahweh had done in the past, and to call her for faithfulness so that they would prepare themselves for a day of visitation. John the Baptist was called by Jesus Christ the greatest man who ever lived. He said, of those who were born from women, none has arisen greater than John, but I tell you the truth that he who is the least in the kingdom of God is even greater than he. Jesus, I believe, is speaking about a difference between the covenants and that the revelation and manifestation, the arrival of the kingdom of God in a tangible form would unleash a grace that not even John the Baptist had access to. Otherwise, what is Jesus saying? Of those Born from women, none has arisen greater than John, but I tell you the truth. Is he saying John wasn't in the kingdom? No, John was surely a believer in Christ. John, in his mother's womb, in Elizabeth's womb, when Mary came and and spoke to Elizabeth, John leapt for joy inside his mother's womb. He knew the Holy Spirit from before his birth. He knows and testifies to Christ, and indeed, that's why he was sent, as, as we're going to look at. And so what is Jesus saying? He's saying that there is something different about the manifestation and revealing of the kingdom of God that creates an option for those who are in the kingdom of God, which John does not have access to, which we're going to see in this passage. John lives in the wilderness, and where he lives is a picture of the spiritual state of the people. The wilderness, as you may have learned from the the sermons we preach here, is a place of exile. It is a place of dryness. It is a place where people do not live because there is no water, no water, and also no vegetation, no vegetation, therefore no animals, no livestock, no no uh, husbandry, cultivation. There's no ability to establish civilization in the wilderness because there is no water. And so yet John the Baptist lives in the wilderness at a place where the river runs smooth and goes to the Jordan for this specific reason. His garments are as camel's hair, which is an unclean animal. And I want you to to think about this for, for just a second if you've ever put on a wool sweater, has anyone ever put on a wool sweater without an undershirt? Okay, this is that time of year where we've got ugly Christmas sweaters. I love those. And, you know, you put it on, and if, you're not, if there's no undershirt, it's itchy, right? This is what John the Baptist is wearing. He wears a garb, a garment, 
a, a piece of clothing that is made of camel's hair, not like wool that has been refined. Even the itchiest woolly sweater is more refined than camel's hairs. Camels live in deserts. Their, their hair is not extremely fluffy or furry. They, they're not like penguins that are nice and warm and fuzzy. They're the opposite of comfortable. What is John doing by wearing this? Well, one of the things he's doing is he's wearing a piece of clothing that all the prophets have worn. They wear this, the scriptures say in Zechariah that they wear a hairy garb or a rough and a coarse fabric cloth. But it's also a symbol of the state of the people that they are unrefined, that they are unable, they're not smooth. They're not, uh, they're not things which are pleasing, but their sins are aggravating, if you will. In fact, the scriptures go on to say that those who wear uh, smooth cloth, uh, Jesus himself testifying of John says, those who wear smooth cloth dwell in king's palaces. He's indicting Herod. He's saying that there is a comfort, comfort which the men of Israel have taken to themselves, and yet they ought to be in sackcloth, right? The, oh, if you've ever seen a, a burlap bag, it's rough. It's not something you wear for delight. It's the opposite of something that you would wear for, for presentation, for, for adorning, for glory. And so John is wearing camel's hair and he's eating locust, one of the very few insects that's permissible to eat. And why is he eating it? It is because locusts have come upon the land. If you're going to eat locusts, there have to be a lot of locusts around. And scripturally, spiritually, locusts are always a sign of the people's sins being manifested in the nation to the degree that God has to send judgment unless their sin multiply and infect the nations around them, as it often does. And yet, John the Baptist, by his eating of the locust, also prophesies that there will be one who devours the devourer. And that's the one who comes and who John announces. So John announces this message, and he, his message is essentially that there is a reckoning that the people of God have to do should they be ready for the visitation that is about to come upon them. He says to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, and anything which is at hand is ready, it's, it's near you. Things which are not at hand it, are distant, they're, they're away from you, you have to go and get. And John the Baptist is saying that we ought to repent because the king is coming, the kingdom, the dominion of the king is here. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven. Uh, the other gospels, if you're unaware, say repent for the kingdom of God. The reason why is Matthew is writing primarily a gospel intended on a Jewish audience or a Hebrew audience, and most of them consider the name of Yahweh too holy to utter. And so when a, a lot of times in the book of Matthew, he'll refer to repent for the kingdom of heaven, and that's just a metonym or a, another name for repent for the kingdom of God. And so he's, he's describing a kingdom which is coming from heaven to earth and is at hand and is coming. And then I want to emphasize here at the end of the chapter, once we get there, how that kingdom did come. So John says that there's an inbreaking reality, and he com comes as a prophet to call the people to faithfulness to be ready for a visitation. Matthew interprets Isaiah as speaking about John's goal or John's role as the one who is to prepare the way of the Lord. It says in verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. I love how the scriptures have these parallel structures, that all the region went to the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. It's explaining the nature and role of John's baptism. See, John is not dunking people in water to perform a magic ceremony. In fact, he might not even be dunking. He might be sprinkling, but I don't know. The point is that John is baptized. He's probably dunking. There's a lot of water at a river. He is immersing people somehow in a river, and those people are going through the river and coming back up out of the river. And this, if you are remembering the scriptures, originally, it's, it's reminding you of things. There's something important 
John baptizes the people in the Jordan and all the nation comes to him because the bondage is something that is agreed upon by all the nation. We live in a time where the majority of the people of this country are in deep war with God, his ways, his word, and his people. And see, what, what's going on at this time in Israel, even those who were faithful synagogue attenders, even those who were faithful you know, deacons or whatever their equivalent were in some of the places, not all of them, as we're about to see with the Pharisees and Sadducees, all the people recognize their deep inability to withstand the day of the visitation of Yahweh, who can stand before his appearing, who can dwell with unending, unceasing burning. This is what is spoken of in the day of Yahweh, the day of visitation will come and no one will be able to stand. The people pass through the Jordan and it's a symbol, spiritually and scripturally speaking, of a return from exile. See, they're in the land already and yet to obey God, they come to hear one in the wilderness. The reason he's in the wilderness is because the people are already in a spiritual wilderness. And the people of Israel, before they entered the land in the first time, and every time they return from exile, from the Assyrian exile, from the various captivities, they always come back and pass through the Jordan. Just as Israel left the wilderness passing through the Jordan, by John's baptism, they are being prepared to encounter the true Israel. You see, the problem is not that they were not in the land. They were in the land, but they had no share in the land. Because to have a share in Israel is to have a share in the Israel of God. That is to say that God's obedience that he required could never be completed by the people, not just because of the inadequacy of the law to create righteousness in them, but also their own inability to perform the law. Even if the law, which we know about from the New Testament, could not create righteousness, nor, that was it, nor was that ever its intention by God, even if it could, the people have all been tried and found wanting. These people are absolutely unable to withstand the day of Yahweh's coming, and so they must be washed, they must be sanctified, they must be ready to make an atonement. And this washing is completely consistent with the way that God has communicated the defiling nature of sin and iniquity throughout his scriptures. Every time someone touches anything related to death that even has the scent of sin before they can come before Yahweh's presence, there must be washing, there must be an atonement. And so they are being prepared to encounter Yahweh himself the Pharisees and the Sadducees come, and they come to John. It says that they were coming to his baptism. Indeed, he, it says that many were coming to his baptism. And he absolutely discerns in his spirit, by the Holy Spirit, that they have no true part in what is actually taking place. You see, baptism, even Christian water baptism, which finds its prototype in this passage, is not at all some magic ceremony or ritual that is done without regard to the faith of the ministers and the people involved. This is something that we try to emphasize in our, uh, in our teaching about baptism, and this message really isn't about baptism itself, uh, but it is important to understand that those who approach the waters with hypocrisy are rejected. They're rejected by John for a specific reason, that there is something that is truly happening. There is something that they are not ready to receive because their heart is not in the right place. One of the things that I think is an interesting uh, description of the American church at this point is how callous we are towards the things which grieve God's heart and how concerned we are about doctrines that we've elevated to scriptural status, that one of the unwritten laws or the unspoken, unnamed doctrines is the doctrine of nice. And I'm not talking about a place in France. I'm talking about a doctrine which says that you as a Christian can never judge anyone or anything. You can't ever exhort, condemn, or rebuke. You can't ever 
Tell your neighbor that they're living in sin or they're destined to hell or that they are currently warring against the Holy Spirit. I just read Acts 6 this week. I'm on the Mishen reading plan this year. It's a wonderful plan so far. And, and Stephen is standing there. They ask him a clarifying question about his gospel, and he spends probably another hour going through the entire history, identifying the Pharisees and Sadducees who killed Christ as the preeminent example of continuing in the ways of their fathers. Just as John the Baptist was the capstone prophet, Stephen says to the Pharisees' faces that you are the capstone in a long series of those who persecute the prophets and war against the Spirit. Stephen would be removed from every church in our country. John the Baptist would be completely condemned by every church in the country as being too harsh. See, we spiritualize these words. You, if you've sat in church, you've heard the term brood of vipers 20,000 times. I'm exaggerating for the point. You've heard it so many times that it has no teeth. But what he's saying is they're a bag of snakes. He's saying that they are those who seek to strangle people to death in the night or seek to creep into tents and bite people's feet and infect them with poison. Their doctrines kill other people. Their doctrines are full of venom and poison. And that's what John the Baptist says to them. He not only says it to them, he says it in public in the hearing of everyone. You see, Jesus Christ is not uh, what we often see in these various Jesus movies. He's not a hippie. He is not one who's in a spiritual trance and just with long, waxy, flowing hair. He probably had curly hair that he was Jewish. He, he, he's not just one who comes and speaks a word of peace to everyone. He says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And swords cut. And the reason swords cut is because men have hearts that are callous. And those swords need to cut to expose and to, to fillet, if you will, to cut deeply and turn over what is in the heart of every man. See, John the Baptist, if he did not speak those words and yet permitted the Pharisees and Sadducees to come to the baptism, he would have done two things. He would have compromised his ministry and he would have absolutely left them in a spiritual danger. The New Testament over and over again presents a commandment by God on the people of God, the men of God that he sends to preach the gospel, to prophesy. And he says that they are going to be guilty of the blood of men unless they deliver the truth. Unless they deal plainly with what is a serious reality the indwelling nature of sin and the hardness of heart to God's mercy and the exaltation of one's righteousness as one's own justification before God, unless you deal with that, you are guilty of someone's blood. Because as a minister of the gospel, you are responsible to those people. Now, I believe ordained elders and people who are called as pastors have a greater measure of responsibility because the New Testament says that plainly. But the point is the same, that John the Baptist used words that were totally appropriate, and not only were appropriate, were absolutely necessary. We hear these sorts of words, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from wrath, and we think that John is being a little bit harsh. He didn't have his coffee the locusts were bad that day. What it, there was no honey to go with them. Something. The reason why he uses those words is nothing less could possibly be anointed by the Spirit to open up the eyes of someone who's not only blind, but keeping their head in the sand with a heart that's calloused. These are the only ways to get through. See, Jesus often is accused in the Gospels of being too harsh with the Pharisees. But actually... This is something I learned from my, my dad in just discussions one day. Everything that he does in exposing their hypocrisy is done in mercy. It's done in love. Because without doing that, they are left blind. They think and are justified in themselves, and they think that they have no reason to repent. And yet he's saying plainly, you're not children of Abraham. You're not at all keeping in repentance. You're a bag of snakes. 
I think if you if you were going to get a tattoo, bag of snakes would be something that you definitely don't want to get tattooed, but it'd be a term that might encapsulate some of the iniquity of, you know, the you see these very skulls and crossbones and all that. That's what he's trying to say. They're they're like the worst possible glorying in iniquity that you could imagine. You're 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 just like the serpent in the wilderness or in the garden. They're they're children of Satan, if you will. You're of your father the devil, is what Jesus later will say. John warns them that there is an axe, and that axe is actually a person, an axe that is coming and is indeed already at the root of the trees. We saw this a few weeks before Christmas in the time of Advent, that Isaiah prophesied that there was going to be a forest that was going to be removed by the fire which was coming in the day of Yahweh. And indeed, that fire shows up in today's passage. God is coming to eat from his vineyard, and he desires to have a part in the work that he had invested. See, God considers the nation of Israel to be his planting, to be his special chosen garden, vineyard, orchard, and he tended it, and he put walls up. He he put stones up on the walls. He took the stones out of the field. He cultivated the soil. He put in good plants with good heritage, and yet when he comes to drink or to eat of the vineyard, all he finds is wild grapes. See, wild grapes don't make wine. Wild grapes have to be cultivated into better grapes, which takes, you know, in the natural, takes hundreds of years. The point is that Yahweh had given everything that was necessary for the people, and yet they had not kept repentance. They had not borne fruit. John prophesies about the glory, therefore, of the Messiah who will usher in a new era He says that Jesus is going to come and far surpass even what he's able to do in that generation. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. Those who bear fruit will be baptized with the Spirit and with fire, but those who bear no fruit will be burned with the fire. Do you see the the two sides of the coin here? The fire is coming. The fire is absolutely coming, and the fire is coming to the people, to the land, to the nation, and everyone will either be gathered into the barn or will be cast off as chaff that is good for nothing but burning. I have this pile in the back of my yard, and unfortunately, because I live in the city, I can't just set fire to it. But every year, I have grass clippings, leaves. They're the fruit, they're the the byproduct of plants, but they're not good for eating. They're good for burning. See, nothing here about the chaff is salvageable. By nature, the chaff, you can't just blend the chaff and make it into like, you know, a wheat smoothie. It's not wheat, it's of a different nature. It's of a different quality. It's not the kernel, but it's rather the, the sheath. And so John says it's ready to be burned. This is not just speaking about the eternal judgment that comes at the last day. I do believe it is saying that, but there's another meaning in this that is much more ready available to the, the Pharisees at this day. He says that this one, this Messiah who is coming, this one who is coming and will be the way of the Lord or he himself will be the Lord, he has a winnowing fork and will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. Now, we've talked about this a little bit in the past, so I won't go into great detail. But the threshing floor was a specific place in the scriptures. And in fact, it's such a clear parallel between Old and New Testaments. This word is only used in the scriptures in this context. There is one threshing floor in the Old Testament scriptures, which David purchases from a guy named Ornan. And Ornan gives up this threshing floor. He, he was going to give it to David. And David says, no, I will not offer an offering to the Lord that does not cost me something. I must purchase it. And David purchases the threshing floor and offers sacrifice upon it. Later, Solomon, David's son, builds the temple and establishes it on what place? The threshing floor. 
He establishes it on the threshing floor, and by virtue of being David's son, having his lineage through his father's side, he is the son of David and will thoroughly clear the threshing floor. This is not just a message of judgment in a spiritual sense at the last day. It also is a warning that there was, is coming a removing of that which is on the threshing floor, which is the temple. This is absolutely what Christ comes to do. The Messiah is going to separate the wheat, those who receive God's word, from the chaff, which is destroyed. So I want to look at this baptism of Jesus. Now, having heard John's prophecy about the Messiah's role, his coming, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, the necessity of repentance and baptism, and John then begins to, uh, having given this prophecy, he is brought into an encounter with Jesus. One of the things to note here is that John does not look for Christ, but rather Christ appears and comes to him. Jesus comes to be baptized by John, and as we've seen, John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. So this leads us to the question, does Jesus need to repent? Many false religions, especially pseudo-Christian cults, by pseudo I mean false, not really Christian, not just slight perversions of Christian doctrine, not just ignorance of certain parts of the scriptures, total twistings of the scriptures, base their understanding of Jesus and who he is, their understanding of him as, as w- whether he's God or not, they, they twist the scriptures on this specific verse, saying that, see, clearly Jesus was not the son of God at this time, but rather he was adopted by God to be his son, just like we're adopted. That's a heresy called adoptionism. If you've never heard it, it's, it's actually alive today. The Mormons and the Jehovah's Witness have their own twistings of these verses in different ways, but very consistent. They use this passage as an evidence. And so it's necessary as Christians that we have a defense for why does Christ get baptized by John? Why is it fulfilling righteousness, as Jesus says? Is it just symbolic? Is it just something that he had to do because his father was testing him? No, and in fact, it, is, it has great theological significance, spiritual significance to who Christ is in his coming. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? See, John notices his own iniquity. John notices his own understanding. This is very similar to Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, he pronounces woe against the nation. He pronounces woe against the peoples who plot in vain. And then when Isaiah sees the Lord, he finally says, woe is me. This is what John the Baptist is doing. He's telling the nation, you're unworthy. You're not able to withstand the day of the Lord. You need to be washed. You need to repent. You need to have the grace of God come and create you anew. And yet, when Jesus comes, he says, I need to be baptized by you. You see, Christian ministers who hold themselves aloof or above their own necessity of Christ are completely, they're they're those who sneak into the fold, who don't go through the door. They come about another way. That's absolutely clear here that John is recognizing his own deep need. Even though John is the greatest who who has been born Uh, from woman until the day of Christ, he himself needs repentance. Verse 15, but Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. See, John not only confesses his sin, at the word of Christ he obeys. This is something that John does and is a wonderful model and pattern. So I want to look at this baptism clearly. Christ is baptized not to be washed of sin, but to identify with his people's sin. The reason that Christ is baptized is not because he needed it, but rather he wished to be united to his people's sinful condition. And by united, I do not mean such that he himself becomes morally culpable of the guilt or tainted by their sin, but rather is covenantally in the office of his media, uh, of his mediatorship or his mediation, his role of the Messiah, he is identifying with those sins. And the reason he identifies with those sins is in order to be able to pay it. 
You cannot just walk into a bank and, and tell the teller, you know, I would just like to ran randomly deposit $1,000. Every bank in the country will take your picture and probably send you to the police. You cannot simply pay debts that do not belong to you. One of the reasons why is because the bankers want to keep privacy, and you can't just walk into a mortgage office and say, I'd like to write someone's mortgage off today. I'm just feeling generous. The year of Jubilee is coming. I want to do this. They won't tell you at all. Why? Because you have no share in their debt. This is what Christ does in being washed. He comes, as John the Baptist tells us, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And of the world, he does not mean the entire world, but the new world that God is forming in Christ. Christ is the atonement of the new covenant. He is covenantally related to his people's sin through this action of baptism. And this action of baptism is rightly considered to his role. See, we cannot be baptized for one another's sins. We cannot be baptized. You can't union yourself to Christ on the, be, on the behalf of someone else. But Christ comes in order to be identified with their iniquity. He not only comes as an atonement, but he is baptized as one who is made like his brothers in all respects, yet without sin. See, he comes to be identified with their sin, but not identified by their sin. This is an important distinction, but it is clear what Christ is doing. He comes as the capstone and head of the church. Finally, Christ is baptized as the high priest of the new covenant, availing us to better and more precious promises. If you've ever read about the ordination of the tabernacle and the sons of Aaron and, uh, and the, the sons of Levi, that is, the Levitical priesthood or, or the Aaronic priesthood, the people first came and were called by Moses to come and assemble themselves. And they were called to purify themselves as they were coming. And once the entire congregation had come, then Moses washes Aaron and Aaron's sons. And after washing them, he anoints them with oil. So after the congregation is assembled, Moses washes Aaron to be the high priest of the people. This exact same thing is going on, except instead of Moses, we have John the Baptist. Instead of Aaron, who was not a sufficient priesthood, we have Christ, who is the true priest after the order of Melchizedek. After the people had come to John, then John washes Christ as the new priest or the, the, the head of the new priesthood, and then the Spirit descends upon him, anointing him, not only as mediator, but one who is going to perform miracles in the land. At this time, however, Christ is baptized in order to inaugurate the kingdom of God. See, there are things which we're going to explore in just a few minutes that relate to his baptism, but here his baptism and anointing by the Spirit is for the designation and public identification that we ought to listen to this one. Moses prophesied long ago that, that God in the future would cause a prophet to arise from among the brothers, from among the people, and it is to him you will listen, and to him you must obey. And God, through the baptism of John the Baptist, and the descending of the Spirit, and the voice uttered, speaks concerning Christ, that he is that prophet that, that Moses spoke of. Just as his baptism in water testifies to many glorious facets of his office and role and mediatorship, also, the Spirit's descent testifies to the same degree. We're going to look at just a few features of the Spirit's descent here. God promised John that John would see the Spirit descend upon the Messiah. And one of the things I think is interesting and is often completely missed, because we're so focused as uh, Reformed Protestants, if you will, on the atonement and the cross, we often miss that that is, that is the capstone it, 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 is, it is a pinnacle in the story of the gospel, but it is not the end. And, and Jesus here is identified as one by John, and John receives a promise concerning this one on whom the Spirit descends and remains, that he has a specific role, not to complete the atonement, not to raise from the dead, but to do something else entirely. In John 1, this is outside of our reading today, but I think it's important to see. John bore witness. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. 
I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water, that is the Father, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. You see, the baptism in the Spirit is the teleological end. It's the goal and completion and capstone of the anointing ministry of Christ. Christ does not simply receive the Spirit who remains upon him in order to minister for a time. He receives the Spirit in order to pour it out. Verse 34, I have seen and testify, bore witness that this is the Son of God. Therefore, the Spirit embodied as a dove descends upon Christ to show his identity as the Lamb of God. John the Baptist in John 1 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then, not only to be the Lamb of God, but also to perform a dispensation of grace, a dispensation or a giving away of the Spirit of God. Here, the Spirit's pleasure in descending and resting on Christ shows a number of things. First, it shows his innocence regarding sin. Throughout all of the Old Covenant, we see numerous examples in which the Spirit of God would descend upon someone and anoint them for a certain time. You can think of a number of examples. For, For example, Noah, when he was leaving the ark, he sent out a dove and it would come back, right? The dove is a symbol here of the Holy Spirit who hovered over the waters. Likewise, Noah sends out a dove who flies around the earth looking for a place to land. He finds none, comes back. Finally, he does find one, but it's not on the first try. I think this is an allegory considering who the dove is, who the spirit is, that he was never able to rest upon one forever. Gideon is clothed with power at one time. We saw Gideon a few weeks ago. And yet Gideon, near the end of his life, actually undoes everything that God did through him. Gideon was a a young man who was hiding at a threshing floor, uh, and he was then, you know, exalted to a position of authority. And the way that he got there was by destroying his father's idols. Well, what happens at the end of Gideon's life is everything is completely undone. At the end of Gideon's life, he sets up a golden ephod, a, a, um, a shirt or a breastplate, and they set it up as a, an idol, which they worship, identifying the power that God had displayed in delivering them from the Philistines sorry, the Midianites, excuse me, uh, with Gideon himself and not that which clothed Gideon, which was not an ephod. It wasn't a piece of gold. It was the spirit. Saul himself is anointed with the spirit and he becomes like a new man, yet Saul through his iniquity drives the spirit away. David is one who is a man after God's own heart. He wrote the Psalms. He was filled with the Spirit. David perceived in the heart of God that God wished to have a tabernacle of singers and musicians, something that God had not commanded or called forth, and yet it pleased God. Every other time that in the Old Testament you see an innovation in worship, it's always condemned. And yet David perceived, he prophesied that this was God's heart, that he wished to have singers and musicians ministering to him night and day. And so David is one who's identified with the graces of God, and yet he commits a sin, not only adultery, but murder, to hide the adultery. You see, the scriptures are completely clear. There is no one who is able to have the Spirit of God come and descend on them and remain. Everyone drives the Spirit away, except this one. Bill Johnson talks about this event. It's probably one of my favorite messages from him. And it's, it's actually something I feel like, as I mentioned at the beginning of this message, the Lord is calling our church into, is that because of this example, as we're going to see in just a few minutes, that Jesus is modeling for us a way of ministry, a way of life. And the Spirit is coming down as a dove. One of the things that Bill, Bill Johnson mentions, that doves are skittish birds. They're, they're easily spooked. I don't know, have you ever been around a bird that's not easily spooked, like a parakeet? And they're like hanging on to you and you like try to throw them off and they're still on there? That's the opposite of what a dove is. And so, you know, in Bill's teaching, he mentions the the nature of those who walk according to the Spirit. How will I walk if I know I have a dove on my shoulder? I'll walk with every step with the dove in mind. 
You see, some of us, we, we live lives that are completely devoid of any communion with God. We go about and coast in this understanding, yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to go to my work, and then when I come home later, I might do some praying later. Or I might read my Bible tomorrow. Now, I'm not saying you have to pray every single moment of the day in such a way that you're not praying while doing other things. I don't think you can pray without ceasing and still live in the world unless you understand that prayer is a disposition of the heart in humility to God as you're living. And you can't seriously read your Bible every minute of your life. That's not required. What is required is a walking with the Holy Spirit, a walking according to the Spirit. In fact, as we're going to see here, unless you do that, you're not even alive, according to Paul in the book of Romans. If you're walking according to the flesh, you will die. But if you're walking according to the Spirit, you will live. So Christ is showing not only his innocence, but also the receptivity of the Holy Spirit to Christ. That is, the Holy Spirit delights in Christ, and Christ is not only by virtue of him being the Son of God, worthy to receive the Spirit, worthy to be anointed by the Spirit, but also as regards his humanity, it was lived out in accordance with God's laws and heart, such that the Spirit was pleased to dwell with him. Christ becomes us, therefore, becomes for us, therefore, the model of obedience, walking according to the Spirit, perceiving and delighting in the heart of the Father. Jesus says, I only do what I see my Father in heaven doing. And so by the Spirit of God, the, the Holy Spirit anoints Christ to know what the Father in heaven is doing. The Father in heaven is unseeable, and yet Jesus speaks of what he sees the Father doing. And so it's clear that this is a spiritual sight. It's not a natural sight. Even as the Spirit descends, the heavens are opened, and the voice from heaven, that is, again, John, Matthew's way of saying the voice of God or the voice of the Father, a voice from heaven came, because he can't use the word God or Yahweh, that voice declares the Father's approval of Jesus, the Son incarnate. Now we know that the Father had from eternity loved the Son, and we know that the Son had also from eternity loved the Father. We saw that when we uh, were reading in John 1, at Christmas, that the Father and the Son were with each other, and that being with is not just saying that they were next to each other, but rather they had intimate communion and fellowship, that the Son is the only one who has seen God, that the Son is the one who has not only seen God, but been so considered by God to be worthy of presenting God. And in fact, Jesus, at the end of his life with his disciples, as he's about to depart, he says, you know, I've shown you the Father. And then Philip comes and says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so Jesus is not just living in some way as to be not guilty of sin, but he's living in a way to actually be approved of by his Father. There are a few things that I think this says. It testifies first that Jesus Christ is his only son who he loves, not just with regard to his identity and essence as the son of God incarnate, as being fully God and fully man, dwelling in one glorious person, but also as regards his way of walking. Luke 2.40 and 2.52 says that Jesus grew with favor, grew in favor with God and with man. There was, a, there was an accordance of Jesus' life with the ways in the heart of God, such that he is pleasing to his Father. The Father, ever having his eye upon the incarnate Son, has seen his life and actions and approved of, of them. But one of the things I think that this is saying is not just that the Father approves of Jesus' life in such a way as to see his living according to the law with perfection, but also I think it speaks something about his approval being the source of and the uh, foundation of, if you will, Jesus' ministry. You see, the Father spoke about the Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, other Gospels say, on whom my favor rests. And so Jesus is identified as one who pleases the Father, but notice clearly this is at the beginning of the Gospels, not at the end. 
You see, Jesus did not earn his father's approval in the way that we often think, but rather he earned his father's approval by resting in and ministering from this ordination, from this declaration from the father over his life. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The father discloses to the people that he has delegated authority to the son to minister, and not only to minister, but to bring light to the people, to gather a new remnant. And through this speaking, the father has delighted to reveal the nature. See, the season of Epiphany is a celebration of the revealing of the incarnate son. But in this passage and so many more, we see so much more than that, because we see the incarnate son in the waters coming up, being blessed with the spirit who comes and dwells and remains and then the Father is uttering his voice from heaven. This absolutely smashes all other perspectives of the nature of God other than that he is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. And in fact, I was reading, doing a little extended research on this passage last night, and I came across one of the commentaries that I infrequently read, but they actually were weaving in something that the early church said that the fathers before the Nicene Creed was even written in 325 and 381 AD, for the first three centuries, if people, theologians, doubted or debated the nature of the Trinity, they had a common phrase that they would just tell them. Kind of like, you know, what we might say now, except for now we say things like let go and let God and just kind of silly things. They had these really wonderful sayings that they would pass around. It said, go to Jordan and learn there about the Trinity. The purpose of this passage is not just to unveil Jesus as the miracle worker, as the Lamb of God, as the one who will come and redeem a people. It's also to reveal Father, Son, and Spirit as the triune being. So, Finally, how does this apply to us? I've touched on it a little bit, but I want to draw a number of implications and applications considering Christ's baptism to us. Though at the time of this happening, that is, on the ground, many of these things which we're going to explore were veiled, today they are not. Just as celebrating Christmas, we don't forget that Christ goes to the cross and is resurrected, so also in Epiphany, we don't celebrate it and kind of like try to rewind the tape and think like, okay, well, what are we just seeing here? You have to read this passage in light of what comes later. And as Christians, we can't read passages in the scripture and think about them theologically as only applying to that context in the moment. We have to see what comes later as actually informing and disclosing what was happening there all along. Christ is baptized so that through baptism, Christian baptism post this, all those who were baptized would be buried with him in order to be raised with him. See, Epiphany is not just celebrating the baptism for ministry, it's also saying that his baptism prophesied about his death. That just as, how, as he went down into the water, he will go also down into the tomb. And this is our source of newness of life. Unless Christ dies and is raised, we are still dead in our sins. We're dead in our trespasses. And because he has died, and because we have been united by baptism to a death like his, we ought to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to righteousness. This is what Jesus is intending to model. See, Jesus's ministries in the Gospels, all that he does is an example of a person who has no iniquity before the Father's court he's approved of, and also what someone does with the Holy Spirit. And these two things, being sinless or being without guilt before the Father and having the anointing of the Spirit, are really a pattern for us. Christ encounters baptism not only to be disclosed as the minister or the atonement, not only to receive the Spirit, but he also is baptized as the head of the church, for he is the first to rise from the dead. See, if we are united only in a death and are never raised, as Paul says, then we are still dead in our sins. I had the chance this week to read an account of one of my um, favorite, favorite theologians and authors, a guy named Rusos Rushduni, and it was an account that his son wrote concerning the last moments of his death. And his son, at the, at, at the day of his death, he reads 1 Corinthians 15 to his father, 
so Mark is the son's name and, and Rusash is the, the dad's name. And he's reading 1 Corinthians 15. And then, you know, his, his dad is basically, you know, he's in his last few hours of death. And he, you know, suddenly comes to deliver a sermon in just a few sentences and says that, you know, this is a glorious passage because it tells us we are ordained to victory. You see, do not perceive your life as just a clock running out, that you have to get enough things done before you turn 80. Because you don't just die, you, are, die, you die for a time. You, you, you sleep, and then you're resurrected. You see, we end up winning at the end. You know, there's, what's so strange is how the devil indoctrinates cultures with these these phrases, these totems or tokens of, of secular theology in words. Have you ever heard this phrase? You've probably heard it, being on the wrong side of history. You've heard that phrase? It's very common the last few years. The liberals, whoever, those who war against God use that phrase because they, they embody this humanism that is somehow progressing to an unknown future, the heat death of the universe because they're atheists. And they proclaim that there is some sort of importance of being justified in a future culture, that, that future cultures will look back to now and see the backwardness of Christianity and will be on the wrong side of history. But see, the problem with that is that they're all going to be dead. And their own theology, the humanist religion, doesn't have a resurrection from the dead. Yet even in saying you're going to be on the wrong side of history and we won't, they never even take it to the logical conclusion, which is, so what? We're dead. See, Christianity is living out a life and sowing into the future because we eat and drink for tomorrow we die and then get resurrected. Through Christ's reception of the Spirit, though it's glorious, it is just a foretaste of what he will receive. Jesus not only receives the Spirit of God anointing for ministry one time, but he also will, after his death, after his resurrection and ascension to the Father, he again receives the Spirit. Peter says in Acts 2 that Jesus Christ, having ascended to the Father, has received the promise of the, the Father in order that he might pour it out on his church. That is why John the Baptist is told, this is the one who comes to baptize in the Holy Spirit. That is the goal of Christ in his earthly ministry. Now that same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in us, giving us new life I want you to think about that verse this week. And in fact, I think it's a helpful verse to meditate on. The, the scriptures say, if the same spirit, if the very same spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, will he not give you new life? You see, the very same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, the means by which Christ came out of the tomb, has taken up residence in you not only through the new birth, but also through the baptism of the Spirit. One of the things that I think is interesting also is how wrong most of the Reformed theologians are concerning the baptism in the Spirit. They, they posit that Christians receive the Spirit at the new birth, and that is all that happens. What's interesting to me, though, and I know I'm going over time, and I, I feel like that's okay right now, um, is that they perceive that the Spirit is coming at the new birth. And I believe that Jesus testified rightly in John 3 that you had to be born of the Spirit and that the Holy Spirit does perform regeneration. The Holy Spirit is the member of the Trinity who applies the work of Christ to a believer's life. If you are alive in Christ today, it is because you have become a new creation through the Spirit of God. Just as God breathed into Adam and he became a living soul, so also the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you and you've become new. Just as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so also we will bear the image of the heavenly man. Now that's speaking about resurrection, but it's mirroring the two images. We have the nature of Adam. We're all humans. But those who've passed out of death and into life are now in the image of the new Adam, Christ. But the Holy Spirit is the one who performs that regeneration. They say that, well, the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in you in new birth, 
because no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. What's interesting about that is that they then claim, well, oh, at Pentecost, really, that's just the sending of the Spirit for, you know, the anointing of, of ministry, and it's just a particular sending. But what's interesting to me is everyone who was at that event had either seen Christ resurrected, or for, in the case of Peter, he had already testified that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal it to you, but through it was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. And we know that the Father always works through the Spirit. That is, the Father does something and the Spirit carries it out. He's pleased to do it that way. And what's also interesting to me is in at the end of the book of John, as Jesus is about to depart, he breathes upon them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Isn't that interesting? He says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. I believe that that was some sort of dispensing or, or delivering of grace, and yet the very same ones who had already received the Holy Spirit are told in Acts 1.8, wait in the city and you will be baptized, you will be clothed with power, and then you will be my witnesses. What's interesting about that is they had already been his witnesses for three years. So there's a new level that comes in the sending of the Holy Spirit. And this reception of the Spirit by Christ this day is done unto the delivering of it on that day. And what's also interesting is they claim that Christians are not admonished to be baptized in the Spirit. If you look through the New Testaments, you'll never read Paul say, be baptized with the Spirit. What does he say? He says, be filled with the Spirit. And so they therefore wrongly conclude that the baptism in the Spirit has ended. But what's interesting to me is Jesus says in Acts 1, 8, you will be baptized. And then in Acts 2, it doesn't say they were baptized. It says they were filled with the Spirit. You see, you are a cup. You cannot baptize yourself in the Holy Spirit because you don't have the Holy Spirit to give. Jesus is the one who baptizes in the Spirit and he baptizes and is filled. And guess what? The New Testament is complete with or replete with commandments, be filled with the Spirit. What's interesting, again, is Acts 2. I know I'm talking about Pentecost on Epiphany, but it's worth it. In Acts 2, they are called drunk. The men of the city mock and say they are drunk. And then Paul takes that same frame of mind and he says, do not be filled with wine, but be ye filled with the Holy Spirit in the King James, because Paul wrote King James. So the point is that the Spirit gives life to the disciples of Christ. He is the one who enables them to walk. If you have been living in a life where you think, I really want to pursue God more, but you approach it in the flesh, then you are not approaching it in the Spirit. There's, you're either approaching it in the flesh or the Spirit. There's there's no middle ground. You're either working in the strength that God supplies or you're working in the strength that you think you have but don't. And the point of that is that Jesus is our model in this passage. Through Christ, we have received the spirit of adoption by which we petition and cry out, Abba, Father. See, the spirit has come not only to perform regeneration but to create communion with the Father that you would be able to, in your heart of heart, not only know that you're redeemed, but know that you're his son or his daughter. You see, you don't call people who are your father, who aren't your father, father. You call people who are your father, father. This is why I think the baptism of the Spirit is so important in our cultural context, because of the breakdown of the family. But this is what happens in the gospel. The gospel is not justification by faith alone. The gospel also includes adoption as sons. In Christ, we were eternally chosen by the Father to be adopted to himself as sons through Christ. See, Christ is not our Father, but it is through him we have access to the Father. We are his brothers, if you will. Not brothers in the sense that we become members of the Trinity or some weird, you know, extrapolation. Rather, the scriptures say plainly that we are sons and daughters of God. That is exactly why Christ comes, in order to gather up those who were being drawn by God and to create in them a covenant, 
a, a relationship with them through him, he then will dispense through himself. He will dispense not only the ability to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, but also the power to be adopted. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We ask you that you would bring our church into a season of visitation, that we would see Christ in this passage, not just, although to even use the word just might malign his role, not simply one who provides an atonement, not simply one who discloses your nature, although those are true and wonderful things, but also that we would see him as a model for life, that we would learn to live like your son, that we would be remade in the image of him, that we would be crucified to our flesh and that the world would be crucified to us, that we would be not only united in his death, but be able to walk in newness of life. Father, we pray that you would give us deep hunger for the word to come alive in our hearts and that it would also come with and and be aided by the baptism of the spirit. We pray, Lord, for a great outpouring on this church of purity and power, that we would become people who not just, uh, who don't just seek to do great exploits, but that we would have great and wonderful communion with you by the Spirit. Lord, we confess that we are in such deep need, and yet your scriptures say that just as you have considered your son, you consider us. Lord, we thank you for this commission, this this revelation of your son. We pray that you would bring these things about in us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.